are glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning. A lot of places I could be, but the only place I want to be is right here. As we're all finding our seats, I have asked uh, two helpers to pass out some papers. I made 36 copies. These are handouts. I didn't know exactly how many people were going to be in here. We'll probably have enough for everybody to have one. But if we're short, I'll just ask the married couples have one per uh, one copy to share. I also want to welcome all those who are watching online. I know there are those who are traveling, those who are sick. So welcome. Glad you're joining us online. This morning, we're going to continue our called series. And I'll reveal to you my title here in a little bit. Um, if everybody would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You don't have to stand because it's going to be several verses. And while you're turning, I want to uh, kind of just give a little preview here. So if you've ever attended a wedding especially if you've ever attended a wedding in church, you've heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It is the quintessential love chapter. It is, is quoted often. Um, you hear it in a lot of sermons and things like that. Uh, this passage gives us some ways to know if we are truly loving like God intended us to love. You see, because the world's version of love isn't really love. It's more of a quest for self-gratification. It's a cheap emotion that can be turned on and off at the drop of a hat. But that's not how God operates. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 1, we're going to see what God says that we should be demonstrating if we are loving like God loves. Verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Verse 4, charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up doth not behave itself unseemly, does not seek, uh, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Now pause for one second before we get to verse 7. Most of this is pretty self-explanatory, right? Love is, is not selfish. Love seeks to help others. Love um, is not just looking for what you can get out of it, but it is truly uh, looking for the betterment of others. So, so those are very easy concepts to understand. Not, not always easy to practice 100% of the time, but easy concepts to understand. But look with me at verse 7. So we're talking about love here. Love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. It's from this last verse that I'd like to pull my title, and it is simply this. Called to trust, not suspicion. We saw in our text that trusting is an extension of love. That's what it means here when it says, believeth all things. The word believeth, you can look up the original word there, and it is implying trust. This world teaches us that trust must be earned, and that trust is easily lost. There's an old saying that I, I've said many times in my life, I'm sure most of you have probably heard this or some variation of this, and it's that trust takes a lifetime to build and only moments to destroy. 
And that is how the world views trust. And unfortunately, I think that is oftentimes how we, even within the church, view trust. Because we've heard these things that you have to prove you're trustworthy before I'll trust you. It's something that you have to earn for me to give you trust. But I hope to show you that this mentality is not in alignment with God. You see, we often think of trust as our response to the actions of another. Therefore, if you make a mistake, my response to you will be based on your previous mistakes. If this is your second or third or fourth time doing the same thing, then my trust in you is eroded. Right? Is that, is that true? Would you say most of you kind of have that mentality that if someone does something to you or, or, or fails to follow through on their word and they do it more than once, you automatically in your flesh like, well, I can't trust that person. They're going to fail. I know they're not going to be able to come through. It is our fleshly mentality that you have to always earn our trust. If this is left unchecked, if this mentality of always viewing people through the lens of suspicion instead of affording them trust, what will happen? We will constantly be looking for ways that people fail instead of looking for ways people can succeed. Verse 5 back in 1 Corinthians 13 says, Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. But listen, it says, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. We, as the church, we should never rejoice when someone fails because we're like, well, see, I knew, I knew they were going to mess up. That should not make us happy. We should not rejoice when someone else makes a mistake. But we should rejoice in the truth. We should rejoice when others succeed. Verse 7 again, beareth all things. Love beareth all things. It believeth all things. It hopeth all things. It endureth all things. I love that this concept of trusting all things is tied directly to endureth all things. Because if trust was a situation where I can just extend it to you and I'm never going to get my feelings hurt and you're never going to let me down, well, then it's easy to trust. But when someone does something to break your trust, trusting them again can be hard. But godly love says that we are to endure all things. Now, it should, should be somewhat self-evident, but I'm just going to say it right here. There is a difference between learning how to extend trust to people and being foolish, right? If, if someone were to come into the church and they were, oh, I don't know, they were seri serially um, abusive, meaning that they constantly abused people, they were physically violent, I want to work to hope that that person gets restored. But I'm not going to be foolish enough to put them in a position where they're likely to beat someone else up, right? If someone is a chronic um, kleptomaniac, if they're constantly stealing, I'm not going to entrust them with the finances of the church. There's a difference between godly trust, and we'll talk about what it is here in a little bit, versus foolishness of putting someone in a position where you know that they're probably going to fail. You don't want to put someone in a position that is going to cause them to stumble either. Now, if you allow me, I want to share a, a short story with you. Um, that kind of encapsulates this mentality of trust versus suspicion. After World War I, 
most of the allied countries were very strongly opposed to getting into any other conflicts. A lot of countries had taken a, a hit, both financially, um, from the, the expense of the war, but emotionally more so. This was the largest war to date. Um, there were so many atrocities that happened during World War I with uh, chemical weapons being used and, and very, very young people dying. So you can imagine that most of the world did not want to get involved in any other conflicts. But you see, at the end of World War I, there was a treaty signed called the Treaty of Versailles. It was called that because it was done in the city of Versailles. The purpose of this treaty was to limit Germany's ability to launch another world war. So there were rules put in place that limited the size of their military. There were economic sanctions placed on Germany that very, very heavily affected their ability to grow. They couldn't go out and purchase a lot of new military weapons. They had very limited money for their defense budget, all of these kind of things. And somewhat rightfully so, they started a world war. And the, country, the rest of the world didn't want that to happen again. This made the people of Germany, though, ripe for revolt. They were living at an all-time low economically. Many of them felt defeated because they had lost the war. Now enter Adolf Hitler, who seized on the emotions of the German people. Hitler quickly began to point the finger at other nations for their current plight. Now I want you to pay attention to what I just said because it's going to really manifest here in a minute. Hitler began pointing the finger at other nations for their current situation. He blamed others for why they were in their situation. He began feeding the people lies that the Jewish people were secretly out to get the Germans and that they were in league with all of the allied nations in an attempt to destroy Germany. When the reality was is that there were thousands of Jews who called Europe their home and thousands of Jews who specifically called Germany their home. So these Jews didn't want Germany destroyed because it was their home. They had no more interest in Germany losing than the native Germans did. But Hitler, knowing how to play on the emotions of people, little by little continued to point toward the Jewish people and toward other countries and said it's their fault. If it wouldn't have been for those people, we, we would have been successful. We would have won the war. You see, Hitler did to the enemy, or Hitler did to, to his people, what Satan has done to the church for generations. He seized on the emotions of a people in such a way that their first instinct was to be suspicious. He ingrained in them little by little by little lies that caused them to automatically view others, anyone other than themselves, suspiciously. Therefore, there could be no trust, there could be no cooperation, there could be no peace. Because the mindset became that I have to get back at those people for what they did to me. Little by little, Hitler began to sink into the heart of the Germans that they could have won if it wasn't. For the others. In the beginning, the Allied forces ignored violations that were made by Hitler. Remember, no one wanted to get involved in another war. So when Hitler began to acquire more weapons and expand the military beyond what the treaty said they could have, 
the rest of the world turned a blind eye because they didn't want to be involved. They said, that's over there. It's not our problem. We're not going to worry about that. But it wasn't long before France, Great Britain, and other European countries began to recognize that Hitler was not content staying in Germany. That he had a notion to expand Germany, to expand the influence of the Nazis. And little by little, the rest of the world began to recognize this. Russia saw this trend as well and decided that it was going to make a non-aggression pact with Germany. Basically what it said is this, Hitler, we will not attack you, we will not join with the Allies as long as you leave us alone. You can do whatever you want to everyone else, but leave us out of it and we won't mess with you. Didn't really work out though, right? You see church, we cannot make a deal with the enemy and expect him to keep his end of the bargain. The Jewish people in the Old Testament made this mistake time after time as they put their trust in the Assyrians and then it backfired on them. They put their trust in the Egyptians and it backfired on them. They put their trust in the Babylonians and it backfired on them. Time after time the Jewish people began to put their trust in the world and it always worked out against them. But it's pretty easy for us to say that we can't make a pact with the devil and expect it to turn out good. Most of us know that. I don't think anybody here would argue that statement that making a deal with the devil is a bad thing, right? That's, that's pretty, pretty straightforward. But there's another problem here. You see, we can also not sit idly by while the enemy attacks other members of the church and think, well, that's not happening to me. While Satan sits here and attacks other members of the church, we cannot sit idly by and just say, it's not, it's not my problem. Because this is what happened at the beginning of World War II. All of the allied countries said, I'm not getting involved. They, okay, they moved into Poland. Yeah, okay, I'm not going to mess with that. They moved into France. Well, that's, that's across the ocean. I'm not worried about that. They moved into to Britain and expanded and expanded. And by the time the countries really got involved, we were way behind the power curve at this point. We as a church must stand united and always be on the offense, not the defense. Meaning that we take the battle to the enemy every day. We pray for one another. We uplift one another. And as Galatians 6.10 says, as often as we are able, we are to do good, especially to those of the household of faith. We must have the mentality that an attack on any one member of the body of Christ is an attack on the whole body of Christ. We cannot view ourselves as separate entities from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we have one purpose, we serve one God, and we must be one body. Now as the war raged on in Europe, another country sought to get in on the action. Japan was chomping at the bit to expand its empire. But they knew that if they were to try and conquer islands that were closer to them in the Philippines, which was a U.S. territory that they would incur the wrath of the United States Navy. So they hatched a plan that they were going to do a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor to knock out the whole fleet there so that they could begin to conquer the islands around them. And most of us know the story of Pearl Harbor, but there's a couple details that I'm willing to wager most of you don't know. And it's these that I want to point out to you. At that time, the Secretary of the Navy 
Frank Knox gave a speech just days before the tragedy at Pearl Harbor. Admiral Knox stood before a room full of news reporters and said, I don't know what's going to happen. In fact, no one knows what's going to happen. But I assure you the Navy will not be caught by surprise. The Navy is ready for any attack. However, this could not have been further from the truth. You see, the commander of the fleet at Pearl Harbor was convinced that if an attack were to come, it was going to come from within. There were more Japanese immigrants who became Americans but were living in Hawaii than there were any other group at that time. There were more Japanese Americans than there were even native Hawaiians at that time. So the admiral of the fleet in Pearl Harbor had become convinced that's what was going to get him. That it was going to be someone from within. So he began to look at everyone, every Japanese American, suspiciously. So what he decided to do was he took all of the ammunition for the anti-aircraft guns and for some of the other weapons, he took all of them and locked them up on the land in a building. So that way, if there was an enemy amongst them, they couldn't get in there and sabotage all of it. Right? But what happened is Pearl Harbor occurred on a Sunday. And the, the guy who had the keys to the ammunition couldn't be found. So when the swarm of planes came and began dropping bombs on Pearl Harbor, they were left defenseless. You see, the suspicion of the leader was so bad that it left his own people completely defenseless. He was more worried about the man next to him than he was the real enemy. And that left them in a position of vulnerability. Church, we have to be careful that we are not looking at others within our church and becoming so suspicious with them that when the enemy attacks, we are left vulnerable. Because one of the greatest weapons that the body has is our unity in the spirit. It's our ability to corporately reach out in prayer for one another, to lift one another up, to strengthen one another in prayers, to bear one another's burdens. But if we get a place in our heart where we are so suspicious that every time someone does anything, says anything, we automatically take it as an offense. What we are doing is dividing the body of Christ. And we are leaving ourselves in such a vulnerable position that when the enemy attacks, we are caught by surprise. The inability of the Navy command to trust its own citizens caused much of the destruction that took place in Pearl Harbor. Now, I want to take this, let's look at some scripture and apply this from the Bible. Look at Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 7. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15, 
And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Jump down to verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, I want you to understand the, the, the image I'm trying to paint here. Here we have God who provided everything that man needed. He provided him with food. He gave him authority and dominion over the animals in the garden. He put him in a position where they didn't have to work and toil for their food. God set them in a literal paradise on earth. So there should be no reason for man to want anything else. They literally had an eternal paradise on earth. But let's pick up in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now when the serpent, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. What was the enemy doing here? In the first act of subterfuge, if you will, in the first act that led to sin, what was the tool that the serpent used? He convinced Eve to not trust God. God had given man and woman everything they needed. He provided everything they needed. He communed with them in the cool of the evening. They had everything. But with just one sentence, the enemy was able to convince Eve, hmm, maybe there is something in this. And that little seed of suspicion began to grow within Eve's mind. Trust is not something we just have to give toward other people. But trust is something we also must give to God. Now, the good thing is, is that we should know that we can trust God because he is not a man that he should lie. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is perfect, but we are not. And in our sinful flesh, sometimes we allow the enemy to speak little seeds of doubt that causes us to get into a position where we begin to not trust God. And that lack of trust pushes us to where Eve went to. Pick up here in verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. You see, when trust is eroded between you and God, not only will it cause you to sin, but unfortunately will also cause you to lead others to follow in your footsteps. 
Verse 9, let's pick up in verse 9. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Remember, we just read in verse 25 of the last chapter that they were both naked, but they weren't ashamed. And now we find them in a position where he's naked, and he has shame because of his nakedness. Verse 11, and he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, the woman made me do it. It wasn't my fault. It was her fault. Right? And when God turned to the woman, she said, no, it's the serpent's fault. It wasn't my fault. You see, when we break our relationship with God, when we begin to doubt trusting God, it doesn't just affect our relationship between us and God, but it instinctively begins to make us fracture our relationships with other people. As the seed of suspicion grows within us, it affects all of our relationships. We are to choose trust over suspicion. Now, it's about this time when you might be thinking, yeah, but what about those people who hurt me? Or what about those people who've made mistakes time and time again? That is the mindset of the world. That's how the world views trust. But choosing trust is not a response to an emotion, but rather a commitment to love others like Christ loves them. Now, I want to give you a few practical principles, and this is where your handouts are going to come in play. I'm going to give you a few practical principles about choosing trust over suspicion. But as we get into these, I want to pause for a second and give a little bit of a disclaimer. In these types of messages, where we're going to talk about how leaders need to extend trust to teams and how we have to extend trust to one another, it can be very easy to begin to think of other people's shortcomings and not extending trust. It's very easy to look over at this person or that person or that leader and say, yeah, they, they don't trust or, or they, they give me a hard time. It's very easy to do that. But that's not what we are supposed to do. What we must do in this section here is we have to look inwardly. I can't make you trust me, right? But I can work on myself to extend trust outward. So apply all of these principles toward yourself. All right, number one, to maintain a healthy church, each member must strive to trust and to be trustworthy. We all must strive to trust and to be trustworthy. You as a saint of God are called to choose trust first. You are also called to become trustworthy. What does that mean to be trustworthy? Being trustworthy does not mean being perfect. Being trustworthy does not mean that if you make a mistake, you are no longer trustworthy. That is the mindset of the world. If you make a mistake, you can't be trusted. But that's not how God operates. Look at number two. A trustworthy person strives to keep their word and to always exhibit integrity. So a trustworthy person strives to keep their word and always strives to exhibit integrity. A trustworthy person is one 
and this is a hard one, a trustworthy person is one who always who admits their mistakes and actively works to repair the gap. If you are unwilling to admit when you fell short, you will begin to lose that trust with other people. Conversely, if you are willing to own up to your own failings, to work on repairing the relationship and doing better, your trust will grow with other people. I think most of us here appreciates when someone comes to us and says, hey, I'm sorry that I failed to do what I said I was going to do, or I'm, I'm sorry that I, I didn't quite hold up to my end of the bargain, and it, it owns up and admits it, and then says, I'm going to work to be better about this. I know for me, I appreciate that much more than the person just pretending like it never happened, pretending like they did nothing wrong at all. What that says to me is, I, I don't know, I mean, you did something wrong, and that's fine, but your actions are showing me that you are going to make no attempt to change that, that action. So for us to be trustworthy means that we must be willing to admit when we make mistakes on our end of the bargain and be willing to repair the gap there. All right, now let me talk to the leaders in the room. And just a little hint here, we're all leaders. Because leaders, being a leader is not a position or a title. Leadership is influence. We are all leaders within our own individual circles, within our homes, with our children, at our job, we are all leaders. If someone comes to you and admits their mistakes, and you respond by getting angry and chastising them, what do you think is going to happen the next time they make a mistake? You think they're going to come right back to you to admit their mistake again? No. If someone comes to you with a genuine heart and says, hey, I messed up, I need to fix this, and your only response to them is belittling and berating, what you are teaching them is, is that they should be afraid when they make a mistake, and they should just try to hide it. So that way they don't get yelled at or get belittled or berated. Instead, we as leaders must set the tone for choosing trust. Meaning that when someone does something to us, and they come and admit it, that we respond with love and mercy and grace. That does not mean we condone mistakes. There is a difference. We can correct in love. We can help others learn how to change their actions, but do it with grace and humility. But if all you do is immediately bash people when they make a mistake, they're not going to come to you anymore with their mistakes. They're just going to hide them from you. And that goes for parents, too. And it is hard for me sometimes. <laughs> sometimes when my little one messes up, my initial instinct is, is, is to want to yell at her. But what that is doing is reinforcing within her, ooh, maybe I shouldn't admit my mistakes to dad because he's going to get mad and yell at me. That's the way we all are as people. Now look down to, verse, or to uh, numeral three here. Many times there are gaps between what we expect. There are gaps between what we expect people to do and what they actually do. When this occurs, we choose what we fill those gaps with. In our own minds, we have expectations of people. We have expectations of how something should be handled, how a certain task should be done. But when someone else does it differently, 
there becomes a gap, a disconnect between what we expected versus what they actually did. And when that happens, we choose what we put in that gap. Are we going to choose to trust that the person had good intentions and made a mistake? Or do we choose to immediately be suspicious of them and think the worst? It is our choice. But unfortunately, most people respond out of their emotions. They will say things like, well, I knew they were going to fail. Or the pastor said something that offended me. He can't be trusted. Extending trust is a deliberate action. It is a choice you make even if your feelings do not agree. Number four, teams use trust as currency. I'm going to say that one again. Teams use trust as currency. If it is in short supply, then the team is poor. But if trust abounds, the members of the team have purchase power with each other to access each other's gifts, talents, energy, creativity, and love. The development of trust then becomes a significant leadership strategy. What this quote is saying is that if you view others through the lens of suspicion, you will have a very hard time accessing that person's gifts and talents to further the kingdom. Instead, you will instinctively treat them as a threat to your leadership. See, suspicion says, oh, they're singing on the platform now? What, am I not good enough? A suspicious mind will always look at others and view them as a threat to yourself. But when teams use trust, when you look at that other person and realize that I'm not in competition with them, we both are trying for the same goal. We both need to expand the kingdom of God. When we look at it that way and we are not threatened by other people's talents, it makes it far easier for me as a leader, for you as a leader, to go to that person and encourage them to use the gifts that they have to expand the kingdom because I'm not threatened by their talent. I'm encouraged by their talent because I choose to trust them and not look at them as a threat to me. Because it's not a competition. You see, a, mind, a, trust, a trustful attitude or a mindset that, ex, that chooses trust will remove the spirit of competitiveness and jealousy. A mind that trusts first will remove the spirit of competitiveness and jealousy. Finally, number six, the number one hindrance to choosing trust over suspicion is your past. The number one hindrance to choosing trust over suspicion is your past. If you are a person who is experienced hurt by those in leadership, then your human fleshly reaction is to always be suspicious of those in leadership over you. You've, your view of others is shaped by your previous experience. Now, to some degree, this makes sense. We, we, we get this attitude sometimes because we think we are protecting ourselves. If we are hurt by someone else, whether that's in, a, in a, a relationship with a spouse, whether that's in a relationship with a pastor or, or just a friend within the church, whenever we've been hurt by people, our natural human response is to build walls so that we don't get hurt again. 
But what we must learn to do is just like God forgave me for all of my many, many mistakes against him, I must also learn to forgive others and not treat others as though they were the ones from my past who hurt me. And it's hard. I don't say this so flippantly that I, I think, well, I'm, I told it to you, so now you just have to do it and that's it. It takes time. To build a mindset where you can learn to trust others, even when you've been hurt in the past, again, is a deliberate action. It's not something that just automatically comes natural on the first try. It means time by time, instance by instance, you must go to God to pray so that you can willingly choose to trust others, to forgive them and to stop looking at others as though the, the people in your past that hurt you are the same people that are now in front of you. And even if the person in front of you is someone who hurt you, you still have to pray to, and forgive them and do your best to extend trust to them. Why? Remember the story of the man who was brought in before the king and he owed the king a great sum of money. And he begged the king, he said, oh king, forgive me, I, I can't pay that money. You know, and he begged for mercy. And what did the king do? He gave him mercy. He forgave him of a huge debt. Then that man left from the king's presence and walking down the road, he saw another man that owed him a small amount of money. And he went to the, to the, uh, uh, the officials, if you will, and had that man arrested and thrown into jail because he didn't pay back his small debt. We had a huge debt paid by Christ. We had a huge debt, which is our very lives, forgiven by God. Who are we then to walk out of the presence of God and go to someone else and refuse to forgive them because they said something to hurt us? Who are we to say that we are better than God to go to someone else and say, well, I can't trust you because you've made a mistake. Imagine what God thinks. Hey, yeah, you made a whole lot of mistakes too, but I'm merciful with you. And I choose to keep extending trust to you. I choose to keep giving you opportunities. I, I choose to keep loving you. We must then do the same toward others. If we could all stand. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to come together in your house. Lord, I pray that you would help us to put on the mind of Christ. To put aside the worldly views of trust and of love and of relationships. And help the church of Omaha be a church that is united with one vision and one purpose and one mission. To be able to look to one another in a spirit of, of unity. To expand the vision. To expand your kingdom, Lord. Help us to put aside all jealousy. Help us to put aside all fleshly uh, thoughts, oh God, of feeling threatened by others. But let us love one another. Let us forgive one another. Lord, help us that when we have made wrongs, to be big enough to go and apologize for our, our own mistakes and to be willing to ask for forgiveness. Lord, I thank you and give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we enter into the short break, I want you to just think about these concepts. I don't expect this to be a message where I just say it to you and boom, you got it, and now you trust everybody and never suspicious. It's not the way it works. But think on these topics. And think about how they apply to you. Come back in 10 minutes, ready to worship.